What's up? And welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how are you doing on this fine Monday, sir? Doing well, man. Grammy Monday. Yeah. The airing of grievances. <laughs> yeah. An annual, an annual holiday. How are you? I mean, I feel, I feel like the airing of grievances is when they... They do the the nominations because you're just yeah, like, oh, of course, these, these people just are they're very uh, specific in terms of who they nominate, and who they don't. Although, and we'll get into it. I think there were some some good good things to come out of last night, better than most years. So right. we'll get to it. But before we do, uh, give us a follow um, on Twitter at NostalgiaPod, and also go to YouTube.com/NostalgiaPod and subscribe especially if you're watching already on YouTube. And uh, lastly, go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod and download us on every platform and listen to the episode over and over and over mm-hmm. and then rate us five star. Yeah. Uh, so Dave, as you said, Grammy Monday, Billie Eilish, picture behind you. Five dubs, brah. And her brother got one. Yeah, the, the, the Eilish family, Billy and, and Phineas. Just, yep crushing it in their their first year really at uh up for nomination um i mean how, how, when we start there how are you feeling about billy Eilish taking home five grammys yesterday right yeah sweeping the big four best new artists album of the year record of the year and song of the year only the second time that's been done since christopher cross in 1981 and by winning album of the year she becomes the youngest winner at 18 years old supplanting Taylor Swift when she won for Fearless. You know, honestly, that's an album that I had, number two, on my top ten list. Check that out if you missed it. I like the album a lot. I think it's an important album that speaks to where we are now and where we are going in terms of mainstream pop music. And, yeah, I think that was a really good choice. Did I expect it to do that big? No. But I'm kind of more happy that Billy got a ton of awards than, say, I don't know, Lizzo or Little Nas X, which were also really inspired nominations, speaking to the good part of the Grammy nominations this year, recognizing the youth. But I think Billy was kind of the superior choice this year, and they actually, they actually nailed it, even if the crotchety Grammy people don't probably get most of this, this music, but it's all good. <laughs> yeah, you know, it seemed like there was a real focus, specifically in the rap category and in like the major categories to really highlight people that are doing a lot of the good work. And also I think to highlight some of the more politically or, or maybe like culturally uh, meaningful people, like for example, Nipsey Hussle featuring Roddy Rich and hit boy and uh, hit boy racks in the middle one best rap performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know if, if in most years that would have, but I think with Nipsey's passing and you know, the recognition mm-hmm. of the it's a good song. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a fine song. You know, I, I Best rap performance. I mean, what are what are we really like saying there? Right. Every rap performance can be. Just- the fact they did that and best rap song, which Twenty One Savage won before the broadcast, <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. They used to do best rap album before the broadcast too. It's like this is the most popular genre in the country, no matter what the recording academy thinks about it. That's just the facts. Right. So you'd think you'd want those people on stage, but of course they had their Nipsey moment planned. So I guess that's okay. Um, Best Rap Sung Performance went to Higher, the Khaled joint with Nipsey and uh, John Legend. 
not the biggest fan of that song, but I get it. It's mm-hmm. okay. Um, your boy and our boy, Anderson Pock in that best R&B album. Shout yeah. out to him. You know, but Tyler, I think, really is the the person who came out of yesterday. One, I thought he had a great speech, great performance. He wins best rap album. Um, and then he had great comments afterwards, kind yep. of. Uh, you know, taking yeah, taking some shots at the uh, at the academy or not the academy at the the Grammy Foundation. Yeah, yeah. recording academy. Yeah, basically just saying, um, you know, when whenever a, a black person makes a genre bending album, they just kind of get put in rap because that's where black people get categorized by the uh, yep, recording academy. That's true. Which I, I thought was brave of him to say, especially. But he just won, so he he can say that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's also. Um, it's a fair critique, you know, because you know you look around and pretty much if you're black and you make an album that you're either R and B or you're rap, and that's it. Yep, mm-hmm. it's not a new thought either. Let's remember Hotline Bling, mm-hmm. Drake won for Hotline Bling, and that was in Best Rap Song, and Drake himself was like, "That's not a rap song. I never said it was. We don't have to pretend it is. You could just put it in pop, mm-hmm. you know, like that. That's okay too." Yep, and. You know, Tyler's comments about the urban word, which has always been a really weird classification. You know, like urban radio is a term as well. It's really, really, really strange way to talk about the music. And like, as Tyler's alluding to, it's just kind of code for saying, here's the black music, you know? Mm-hmm. And I mean, look at, uh, was it album of the year? Only one time in the past decade, was it won by a non-white person? That was Bruno Mars, 24 Karat <laughs> Magic. Kanye West never won any of the top prizes despite winning 21 Grammys. Like it's systematic thing and you can you look back to the uh uh the big news that happened right before the ceremony with uh the head of the grammys deborah duggan getting ousted 10 days before the show and then revealing herself that there's widespread voting uh inaccuracies and other various scandals within the recording academy and not stuff that probably surprises too many people that are critical of the music industry but just kind of seeing that put on stage while the there's still work to be done. Let's let's put it that way. Definitely a lot of work to be done, and you know you can kind of see this this divide growing within the uh, I don't know within maybe the two segments of the recording academy because a, a, a critique of the show last night was that it just felt like there was no flow and very polarized between younger people. You know, you had Lizzo opening the show. Billie Eilish performing, Little Nas X, all these people who are brand new artists and, and were huge this year, and just kind of like burst onto the scene. And then you also had Aerosmith and Run DMC showing out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just this major contrast between yeah. the old and the new right now. All, all these old school ballads and yeah. random tributes that are kind of hard to place, you know, it's just, mm-hmm. yeah, it, there's, there's no identity, no, through line for the ceremony just kind of throwing shit at the wall and doing lots of things they've always done while being like oh well we have rosalia here and she's young and <laughs> right. people like flamenco music and that, that that's good for you right okay cool well here's steven tyler and like sometimes <laughs> old stuff's fine like i thought uh the osbournes were really funny as presenters yeah you know, that, that's great but ah uh, man dude i i, I don't watch the whole thing and full disclosure, I, I tuned in and I was like, oh, wait, there's still a lot more to this show. Oh, my God. And like, 
coming up. Here's her. And I'm like, bro, I don't need to see her at fucking 11, 10 PM. I'm sorry. Let's, let's, let's focus on our priorities. And her, her's a talented person, but like, God, that, that's, it dragged. <laughs> it, yeah, it definitely dragged. And you know, I actually kind of feel for their conundrum, right? Because who watches these award shows? Uh, it's not usually younger people. So to be kind of boasting like Billie Eilish is coming up or here's BTS or here's Rosalia. A lot of the old heads are like, I'm not going to tune into this. But then you have to throw something like Aerosmith out there to keep them coming because they're the ones who are watching this. So it's it's a problem. I don't really know how they solve it. And I'm glad I don't have to. Um, But I I think maybe in the future we'll see the Grammys moving more and more younger, but trying to maybe advertise the show differently. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, there's also other things too, like FKA Twigs being there, and not but not being it. asked to perform. Like I know, like Magdalene, I believe, didn't make this Grammy cycle, if I remember right. But she's there. She could have sang. She she uh, was asked to perform. She had to do a pole dance, which right. she killed. Yeah. But she wasn't allowed yeah. to sing. Shout out the Silafane video. So uh, Lana didn't perform at all. Um, yeah. yeah, there's just high scratching moments. Like obviously yeah. Lizzo being there, Lil Nas X being there. That makes sense. Um, BTS being rele- relegated to the remix version, the Soul Town Road. Uh, okay, I guess. I think people would have been happy to see more of them. They're talented guys, but mm-hmm. alas, that, that's what happens with the Grammys. And we'll see if anything starts to change. Let's not forget, not too long ago, Frank Ocean didn't even submit Blonde to the Grammys, mm-hmm. right? No one shows up if they're not nominated. Taylor Swift even felt slighted that she didn't get the most possible honors for lover. So she didn't go like, and you think about Diddy's comments at that gala a few days ago about the lack of respect for black contributions to music. And mm. I think the way Diddy put it is if we don't support, no one's going to support. And it's fucking true. Like, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, there, there's always been the backlash against the Grammys and specifically, I think black artists, you know, taking a stand against them. You look at last night, some of the, the biggest winners or, or biggest people that were nominated, Beyonce wasn't there, Dave Chappelle wasn't there. Um, there there's major players within that the, the musical field who are not mm. supporting it. So it's, you know, it's, it continues to be probably the biggest shit show in, in the awards shows right. uh, by far. And, and the one that we should take the least seriously. L- like the music you like and honor that. And who gives a shit who wins the Grammys in the end if you like the music. Right. So and the artists certainly don't. Uh, why don't we move on to uh, an artist that we were maybe not anticipating this, but I think excited to talk about after listening to their second album, Jay Huss with Big Conspiracy. Um, yeah, it, it was interesting because when, when you texted me, you were like, hey, give this a listen. Let's just talk about it. I was like, ah, oh, Jay Huss. I, I, I recognize that name. Um, obviously not as tuned into the rap world as you, so I figured you were probably very aware of him. I'm usually behind on English guys, to be honest. But <laughs> well, definitely ahead of me on it. And uh, <laughs> gave him a listen. Really liked this album. I thought could, Big Conspiracy is is a, a pleasurable listen from start to finish. But I was like, man, where do I know this guy from? And talking pre-show, featured on Ed Sheeran, featured on Skepta's album. But mm. only 23 years old. Yeah. That's what? Wild. Second album, 23. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, digging. That's the thing too. I, you know, Jay Huss's name was hard to miss the past few years. I had just assumed, you know, being someone who's still new to the UK scene, I assumed he was like an OG. I thought he was like Wiley. I didn't know he was this kid that was uh-huh. so hot already. I, I just, 
I was I was kind of surprised looking into it, you know, and listening to his first album, Common Sense. Like like he has a tape, he has two EPs. Good, you see the promise there. But that first album, Common Sense, I really 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 like. It kind of it's funny. He's being a, uh, a, a credited with creating this new like blending of genres in the UK sound. I believe there's a lot of names for it. People are calling it Afro swing. Huh. Kind of like Afro beats mixed with grime and dance hall. It's very, very interesting. And you can hear that on Big Conspiracy, but it was especially present on the first album, Common Sense, where he literally would just do various different sounds. Sometimes he would sound like Drake. Sometimes he'd go hard like he was Skepta. It was really cool. And I think with Big Conspiracy, it took me by surprise just for a second when I first started listening to it because it's a little mellower, which I guess makes sense because he spent a few months in jail in between albums. And you can tell that he just comes across a little more wiser, a little more thoughtful and introspective, despite again, still being only 23 years of age. And I think that was, that was cool to see in it and is a good sign for the longevity of Jay Huss that he, uh, has a pretty firm grasp on a lot of different sounds right now, but also has a lot working under the hood and, and has some things to say. So that, that, that was really cool, really cool to hear, even if it took me by surprise initially. What did you think though? Well, you know, it's funny to hear you talk about how he's kind of created this new like Afro swing sound. So I, I think that's actually a great way to kind of embody it. I was going to say, um, that like dance hall part didn't come through for me until like the very end of the album, which I actually think is where I, I was enjoying it the most was at the back, like third. Um, not, not to say anything before that was bad, but I would have guessed, you know, let, if he wasn't British, he didn't have a British accent that this would have been a guy that came out of Chicago. Cause you hear a lot of like jazz infused, like more mellow songs at the, at the beginning of the album. Um, and like specifically, you know, songs like, um uh, triumph uh or uh, repeat with coffee um i mm. think those are just like totally like smooth like songs that he flows beautifully over and just like a real pleasure to listen to um and i i think it's great and then you get to something like love peace and prosperity which you hear a lot more of that like that dance hall feel to it you feel like you're listening to an island song um i i was really impressed i thought he he made a really good album for a second album. And, you know, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, back to like, I don't even remember the song he was on with Ed Sheeran. I remember that I saw the name on the track list. That whole album is so like, yeah. Uh, did I ever put any of that into my memory? Probably. Ideally not. not. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was uh, with feels young thug and Jay Huss and Ed Sheeran okay. two, two, two thirds English. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I don't remember that song, but I feel like he's obviously getting his name out there and it feels like he's primed for a, a big career. So what, what, what songs were like the standouts to you? What did you like gravitate towards? Yeah, um, I liked uh, some of those early singles, I think, for this. No Denying and Must Be mm-hmm. towards the yeah, end. Yeah, Must Be was great. And then uh, the last track, Deeper Than Rap as well. That was pretty cool. But like, you mentioned Repeat. Um, Play Play with Burna Boy. He had Burna Boy in the last album too, which is, I think, notable because Burna hadn't fully broken out at that point yet. Um, and then Fortune Teller as well, I liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, the shit's fucking smooth, man. Yeah. And then if you, when, he, when he gets thoughtful about both his personal life and then just how he feels like he's part of like a, a 
larger police state in a sense in London. You know, it's um, there actually is a lot there. So yeah, I think I think it's fucking awesome. And yeah, he's just he's just I'm just really really into it now. I've I've been running back the first album a lot lately. I think Common Sense really like has a lot more like bangers in a sense, which is cool because again they're like genre bending bangers. But Big Conspiracy, the, the, there's some thoughtful tunes here. It, it definitely strikes me as an early front runner for like surprise album of the year. Something similar to mm-hmm. Little Sims last year, where it just kind of right. like came out. And we were like, oh shit, this this actually goes. So um, that that get, British rap scene, man, get some Brit awards love down the line. We'll see. Um, any last thoughts on this before we move on? Oh yeah. Um, funny enough, this album leaked like a week ago like legitimately leaked that's not something that like happens anymore like it's right. not like a news item hmm. and I, I didn't notice it of course because i'm just like no one's really plugged into that anymore like it's like people were into the snippet gang for unreleased stuff but when when an album's coming we just kind of let, let, let the release date happen now right but funny enough he has such a dedicated fan base they all like attacked people on social media that were sharing the links and like no one was gonna buy it, like buy uh, like bootleg copies. It's kind of cool to see that that people are like, oh yeah, well, well, we'll wait the extra few days because then we don't have to pay. But I, I still appreciate the principle. Yeah. Oh man, um, I, I respect the fans respecting the artists on that. You know, shout yeah. out to, to Jay Huss and his crew. Um, we're gonna stay British though. Moving on to Sex Education. Um, oh yeah, a show whose first season made it onto my top 10 list. And you should go check out that best of 2019 top 10 list uh, for TV, as well as movies and music and everything else we talked about. Uh, Created by Lori Nunn. Um, I mean, when we talked about it, and it it came close to making your end of year list too last year, Mm -hmm. I think what we liked about it was it was uh, a British teen drama that touched on a lot of current uh, issues of identity and yep. diversity in, in a way that was thoughtful and kind of kept its playfulness and had a good balance between that like humor and, and the serious aspect of it. And we, we were pretty impressed. Do yep. you feel like season two brought more of the same Did it level up? Where are you at with season two? Yeah. And again, because it came out of nowhere, like, yeah a few Netflix shows do every year that kind of adds to the admiration because you just go in with no expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, this time, obviously knowing they have expectations, knowing that by all accounts, it was a big hit. Apparently Netflix said 40 million people watched season one in the first month. Who the fuck knows what that means? They, they, they change what that means all the time. But anyway, people watch, people like the show. You can see on social media, the the, the whole cast of characters, has gone gone pretty famous. Like mm-hmm. people went into this show. But yeah, going into season two, or we're watching season two. Um, I wouldn't say it leveled up in a sense, but it didn't let me down. It still kind of gave me what I want. I think it was interesting because it it did things differently by changing up some of the core dynamics on the show, namely like the whole clinic aspect of Otis giving advice. More or less, was not part of this season, and having his mom be more directly involved in everyone else's storylines by being in the school and then kind of just making, making the story, I think just more broader, you know, bringing in the parents, bringing in the teachers, just more B plots uh, was cool. And I still really enjoyed it. what do you think? I actually think I liked the season more than the season one. 
Um, what I think I liked more, season one, there's a, a part in the middle where uh, Eric and Otis, you know, uh, the, the, the main friendship that you're following. Right. Um, they, they have a falling out, they get mad at each other, and they don't really, like, speak for, like, two or three episodes. And I, I found that to be so frustrating in that in season one because i felt like i just wanted them to communicate i wanted them to talk it out um and i felt like that took away some of like the pleasure of the show for me and season two while having some conflict between them they resolve it pretty quickly and they kind of keep that relationship at the heart of the show and they're kind of like the support as they each go on their own adventures and discovering themselves and the relationships that they find themselves in um and i think they they balance the the drama of the season a little bit better than maybe they right. did last season. Sure. With some of the humor. Um, I mean, there, there's still some things about the the show that I think could be improved. Like out of nowhere, the the play at the end is is a musical that's so weird and like out there, and you don't really get that like <laughs> delivered to you until the last episode. But <laughs> right. I st- I still thought um, I thought they they made this a lot uh, a, l- a lot more of a fun watch this season. And, Maybe they did in season one, which is hard to do because it was a fun watch in season one. I also thought they introduced and built out a lot of the characters a little bit better in this season. Definitely. Right? And like you get someone like Viv who kind of comes into yeah. the season mm-hmm. unknown and leaves as probably one of my favorites. So yeah. she, she was brand new this season, right? Yeah, as far as I remember. That's what I thought. Yeah. 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 I like I liked Viv a lot. And along those lines, Jackson making uh-huh. him a little more multi-layered, even if the th- through the the thread he's on, it might be familiar and uh, easy to comprehend. It's still cool to see that be layered more. You know, it was interesting too because Maeve is largely separated from the rest of the gang for large swaths of this season. But in that in its place, you have Maeve dealing with lots of important personal stories and I think touching on some deeper stuff. And because Emma Mackey is such a talented performer, she really carries those scenes well. So it was still good. But I, uh, let's, I'm trying to think. Like, I think my, my favorite aspect overall was probably just having uh, Eric get into a relationship with somebody else and have Raheem. Um, more going on. Raheem uh, cutting everyone with that strong jaw. You know, the, the Dance Dance Revolution scene was really cool. Um, everything with the uh, everything with the rail yard, I thought was kind of funny. I didn't ask for it to be a, a recurring motif the way it was, especially at the end when they have like a Breakfast Club-esque, mm-hmm. uh, you know, girl power scene. Yeah. Um, and in a sense, there is, there's a Me Too storyline here in a certain sense as well. I think that's pretty hand, handled pretty deftly as well. Um, but ultimately, I, there's a lot of tropey stuff, right? There's lots of triangles, lots of love triangles, right. lots of cliches. But it's okay, because I think because you like all these performers and you like all these characters, and as you said, the ensemble's being fleshed out more, it's just such a fun time to hang at that school and with those people that you don't mind if some of the, the storylines are a little, you know, familiar. Yeah. It, in watching and talking with some people that watched it, um, something that came up a lot was, this reminded me a lot of Euphoria you know, this season. And I I think, I think where it kind of lands for me in terms of like the, the current high school dramas is euphoria is like all the way over at this extreme and sex education, I feel like falls a little bit like a step or two 
back from that extreme because it it really is a lot more palatable. <laughs> um, you know, euphoria is can be so explicit, so graphic. People are on so many drugs there. The parties are so extreme and so yep. lavish. I mean, even the party they have here is ridiculous. And like Otis, is, but like at the the after effects of it and like the mm-hmm. the things that happen feel so much more like grounded in a way. Um, I don't know. I, I think sex, sex education for me, even though it doesn't have the style level of euphoria, no, I still I still think it hits better for me just because I find it a lot more pleasurable to watch episode to episode. Right. I also thought, um, you know, you kind of touched on like Amy Gibbs and, and her storyline of, you know, the uh, what happens to her on the bus and how that's handled. I thought that was great. I thought talking about asexuality and, and all the different types of sexuality was handled really well. Um, and kind of just the whole storyline with uh, Jillian Anderson's uh, Dr. Milburn kind of coming into the school and, yeah. um, you know, giving advice and then kind of finding out that Otis was giving advice and how that all kind of came into a crescendo at the end of the season at the play. I thought that was all done really well and, and kind of handled with seriousness and, and humor. Um, I'm just really impressed by the season. I think they, they seem to have found their stride. They know what the show is. They know what they want it to be. And, there's so much for them to continue exploring. I mean, we're obviously going to get a lot more of uh, Adam next season as he's kind of coming to his own. And I'm sure yeah. his relationship with his dad's going to be at the center of it. He was my least favorite part of this season, I'd say. Really? Yeah, I, I just... I, I think in a sense like you're spinning its wheels, but I was happy where it ended with Eric actually like telling him off after Otis, I think, actually had one of his more helpful pieces of advice given when he's like, this guy treated you horribly for so long. This is dumb. Yeah. That was cool. That was good. You know? Yep. So I think hopefully Adam's getting to a, a better place just because, because he was like the, the silent self-loathing type. It's just not like the best hang. Mm-hmm. And unlike say, uh, Jacob Alordi in euphoria, who is in a similar situation, Adam doesn't really do a whole lot to impact the plot for most of it. So, it's I think the, the presence is not as strong, but it's we're getting there. They know what they have in this, as you said. Netflix hasn't renewed it for season three yet. They will. Last last time it took them like a month, so that's going to happen. Also, shout out uh, the actor who plays Sweet Robin Aaron from Game of Thrones. He's the <laughs> yeah. guy with the Rubik's cube in this season. Uh, total dork. <laughs> yeah, I hate that guy. But you know who I want to give a shout out to is Lily, played by Tanya Reynolds. Um, yep. Oh yeah, her character. I, I think this season made the biggest leap for me from the first season. Uh, Jackson obviously is up there too because I I didn't really like him much in the first season. I think they really do a good job of building him out in this season. But right. Lily being this like weirdo alien uh, sex writing person, <laughs> octopus, getting, <laughs> yeah, getting not only a relationship um, with another woman, but you know, getting to write this play, direct this play, getting a lot of the like funny mm-hmm. lines and also kind of giving some, some sage advice. They really gave her some, some room. So yeah, uh, seems like the biggest riser in my book. Right. My One last shout out to, uh, they use mystery of love from Sufjan Stevens from call me by your name, which is just a cheat code for romantic, oh, yeah. uh, montage scenes and a smart choice. And I was yeah. happy to see that <laughs> when that came on, I was like, call me by my name like i know this song also they <laughs> use a, a cover of an lcd song over and over which i oh, was shit, okay very hell yeah I, I can change so some good music choices as well definitely a show i recommend checking out if you haven't um early early runner to be on my top 10 list of the year um we're gonna stay british bruv 
Yes, we're going to talk about Bhagwan. <laughs> we're going to talk about The Gentleman, Guy Ritchie's newest film starring Matthew McConaughey, Charlie Hunnam, uh, Hugh Grant, uh, Jeremy Strong being mm-hmm. a huge fucking weirdo. Henry Golding, <laughs> Michelle yeah. Dockery. Yep. Uh, and Colin Farrell. That's bringing up the rear. Coach. Oh, yeah. Co- Coach is a great character, man. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny because uh, last time we talked about Guy Ritchie was just last year with right. his uh, Aladdin live action remake. And Dave, how did you feel about that? Uh, <laughs> might be my f- one of my it's one of my favorites of the live action remakes. Not that that says a whole lot. I liked it more than the Lion <laughs> King remake. I'll tell you that. I liked it more than Dumbo. Uh, there's some interesting parts too. I thought Mena Masood was a really winning piece of casting as live action Aladdin. I liked Will Smith's turn as the genie as well. Um, ultimately, it's tough to get too much of a feel of Guy Ritchie's sensibilities directing that movie because it's you know part of the Disney machines and adaptation. You know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I think ultimately it's a while it made 1.1 billion dollars, no one looks on it too fondly, apart from children. Yeah. No, uh, and and the thing is, Guy Ritchie has such a such a stout resume, right? You know, obviously yeah. created Snatch. Um, I'm, I'm blanking on other films. Black Stock and Two Smoking Barrels; those are his yep. first two movies. Um, um, did the Sherlock Holmes movies? Right, the Sherlock Holmes movies. That's what I was trying to think of. Um, he's he has such a distinct style that's so pleasurable and, and just fun to watch, and though Aladdin might have been the best of the remakes, still felt like, yeah, why do we need these remakes? They're really necessary. Right. Um, so ha- to have him come back just you know less than a year later and drop what, what really feels like a classic Guy Ritchie film was just, just great to see. And I, I left mm-hmm. the theater pretty satisfied and overall very happy with, with what I watched. How did you feel leaving The Gentleman? Yeah, I agree. It's definitely not top tier, Richie. This is not lock stock. It's not snatch. It doesn't have the film making panache that Richie kind of burst on the scene with the turn of the uh, turn of the two thousand turn two thousand. But it still has that you know that snappy, witty dialogue that we associate with him, and this memorable cast of characters and winning casting. So it has all that DNA of. Guy Ritchie doing original films, even if I, 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 you know, have it a peg below his top tier stuff. But yeah, it, it, I think it's really fun. And even, you know, there's some issues, but, you know, I uh, was satisfied as well. So why don't we start with just kind of breaking down the main characters of the movie? So Matthew McConaughey playing Mickey, um, running this uh, underground marijuana operation that's made right. him this millionaire. He's, kind of like it, and it's kind of like, like these different gangs right he's like the american in the gang and there's like the chinese gang we don't really get introduced to too much of like the british like like head of, of whatever gang there is out there and he and charlie hunnam's his right hand man raymond who's mm-hmm. kind of being uh, uh what do you want to say like blackmailed or uh extorted by hugh grant's right uh, private eye private eye um from so that he doesn't bring this to like the press <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's it's a bit of like a convoluted plot, I think, a little bit. But basically, where where the conflict comes is he's, uh, Mickey's trying to sell his his operation to Jeremy Strong, kind of foreseeing that the marijuana 
game is going to need someone with a little bit less blood on their hands. And Jeremy Strong mm-hmm. is that, that person. Right. And Henry Golding's trying to also buy Mickey's operation, which he doesn't want to do. And you have Hugh Grant who's in the middle of this trying to extort right. whatever money he can for it. Um, how did you, I mean, did you feel like, like the plot was, was good, made sense, coherent? Yeah, I think the plot actually is pretty simple once you watch the movie and understand it. And the, the simple framing device of having uh, Grant narrate to Kahneman, the audience, what's happened in the, like it's told out of order with flashbacks and stuff. I actually enjoy it. I thought it was uh, amusing and, you know, I think it keeps your attention. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, not, it's not, too, uh, not too crazy. Again, like his other stuff, there's not like, it's not really big twists beyond like the, the did, did he die in the beginning? Right. Turns out, no, no, he didn't. <laughs> about that you know other than that nothing's that surprising yeah no not not really i mean i think there's a couple of moments where things kind of fall into place right like the uh like coach and, and his guys and how they yeah. kind of just happen to know like mickey's being abducted by these russian people and that kind of comes in at the end out of nowhere a bit like oh this russian sure. guy really is like the big bad of all of it yeah and they're he able killed to his son it. yeah uh it's a bit of like a twist i guess at the end um, out of nowhere. I also felt like, and this is going to be like a weird thing to, and we can come back around to his character. Henry Golding's character felt like he goes from being this like semi menacing, but kind of like overall, just like a middleman. Yeah. to all of a sudden being like ready to just like rape his wife, like uh, at the drop of a hat. And I was like, yeah. where, where the hell is this coming from? Like that felt very like out of nowhere. That definitely felt ham- hamstrung in, but yeah, I mean, but like going in there or as it's progressing, like, all right, dries the opportunistic, rising yeah. in the ranks gangster we understand what that means uh-huh. and then he yeah he gets a he gets a uh like bloodlust i guess i don't know yeah the uh just hamstringing in the rape kind of yeah. i don't know or didn't really add anything no <laughs> strange. also there's uh it definitely uh plays fast and loose with uh stereotypes and uh racial epithets right it's uh, oh, yeah. it's pretty crass um uh I don't know, regressive movie, I guess. It's not openly spewing any bigotry, but it's just kind of playing with uh, that stuff. And I guess the Asian characters are handled a little stereotypically. I think they say a license to kill at one point, which is, uh, you know, a a groaner for sure. (laughs) How did you feel about Jeremy Strong's character? Probably my least favorite of the bunch. It's kind of a weird performance. Uh, the fashion was, I, I liked his, his fits, but yeah, he's doing a weird accent. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't really exactly sure what he was going for um, in a lot of the movie. Um, and I, I agree, probably my least favorite character. I also feel like even though he's kind of like under or trying to undermine this whole operation, it makes a lot of sense, you know, like why he's doing it and driving the price down of, of the operation. Just like, the way he went out just kind of like a bitch at the end. I was like, man, yeah. like M- Mickey is just overall supposed to be this, like uh, I'm going to get the upper hand no matter what all the time type of person. And I wish, I wish it had been a bit more formidable there at the end. Sure. Um, but you know who I loved in this movie it was Charlie Hunnam. I thought he was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. He's doing just kind of playing, like playing it straight and playing off of Grant, who is just being really uh, flamboyant. And really going for it. Yeah, really good presence. Liked Hunnam there. You know, again, Hunnam's a guy who's 
has ups and downs as a leading man post Sons of Anarchy. But yeah, this is I think this is this is kind of him doing what he does best, just kind of being just being kind of dashing, you know, being a little debonair when he when he ch- when they chase down those kids who see the see the the window death. Uh, I really like that as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm looking at his like his movies recently. Triple Frontier, yep. King Lost Arthur, Lost City of Z. I mean, it, a true up and down. <laughs> yeah. you, King you know, Arthur was Richie too. Let's not forget. Yeah, and you know, I don't know if there's a through line to like what movies he really hits in and what he doesn't. You know, obviously, I think most people would know him from like Sons of Anarchy. But probably the, probably the movie I like him in most is Green Street Hooligans. And in that, he plays this like charming, kind of menacing, you know, soccer hooligan. Um, mm-hmm. This, he gets to just be charming again. I think people should just let him be charming more often. Um, yep. I think when he gets kind of shoehorned into these like tough guy scenarios, maybe he's not able to like let as much of that out. Like Triple Frontier, I actually forgot he was in that. <laughs> yeah. I totally forgot. He's just muscular guy, too. Yeah. That. <laughs> um, also, I mean, Con, seeing Con Farrell in basically anything is enjoyable. He's just so awesome. But man, I really like that music video they shot in the <laughs> underground compound. And then I looked it up. That guy, Bugsy Malone, is actually a British grime artist. He's a he's a real rapper. And I was like, I was in the movie. I was like, this song fucking rules. Can we release this? And this song is not released yet. I want I want to hear that song again. That was a banger. <laughs> yeah, definitely tune into our. Uh... Nostalgia Best of 2020, because I think that will be on there uh, <laughs> when, it, when it drops. Because I also was like, this is actually a pretty good music video. It looks fucking awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned Colin Farrell. I think he gets to be very Colin Farrell, but within like certain parameters, which I think bring him in well. Um, when he gets to go full Colin Farrell, it doesn't right. always work out, but kind of being this more like subdued, like I'm just doing what I have to do to like, be an honorable person it like really seemed to like fit him for this so uh really enjoyed him in this movie as well and grant you know you already mentioned being you know extremely flamboyant and provocative saying the c word a hundred times yeah but isn't it nice to kind of see him in the second part or second third act of his career really start to just like pick weird roles and not be rom-com guy yeah like i i feel Mm -hmm. like he's kind of always had this but just kind of got roped into like handsome, yep. but not overly handsome British guy, you know? Yep, um, absolutely. What'd you think of the Miramax logo? That definitely uh, popped up in the movie. I was like, damn, interesting that they kept that in. Like this movie, SDX bought this movie from Miramax, mm-hmm. which is obviously many since removed from the Weinstein connections. But it's kind of interesting to see kind of a relic of yeah. the film industry actually featured literally in the movie like they get you go to Miramax in, in in the story at the end you know yeah yeah I was uh I was like a bit taken back by it but I was like yeah you know it's one of those things I, I didn't have yep. too much too many notes on that um what else stood out to you about the movie what else did you really like um no I think that's it it's just you know it's just kind of that fun quick moving nature of guy even if it's not his most intelligent or impressive from a filmmaking standpoint, it's still, I think, still a good time. And yeah, it, it's kind of playing to, I guess, the Richie base. This is a movie that you look at the audience breakdown for the box office. It's overwhelmingly male. It's overwhelmingly adult. It's, it's not by the most inviting story. It's, I guess, it's kind of hard to sell too because it's just really such a foul-mouthed 
English gangsters fucking killing each other and looking good doing it, you know? <laughs> it, it's yeah. so, it's simple, but it, it's enjoyable. Especially yeah. for a January movie. I'm, I'm very satisfied. If, the, if there's one critique of it, it's probably that, you know, the, there's really only one female in the movie. Um, she is a badass. Um, she is. But, you know, also playing just a supporting role to Mickey. Still playing a wife. You know, we, we saw McConaughey in Serenity last January. Definitely a step up for January movies for him. Definitely. How did you feel about him in the movie? Uh, he's just doing his normal thing. You know, he's like, uh, th- th- those are... Those are juvenile numbers, man. We gotta get these get these marijuana sales up. Yeah. <laughs> he's just doing what he's done the last five years. He's in the Lincoln commercial. He's in Wolf Wall Street. It's the same shit. Yeah. You know? I got the Silverback. You know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I, I gotta say, I really enjoyed when he was like, you know, it's it's my vice, but I don't partake. I I literally like laughed out loud in the theater. Yeah. I was like, you're that like known for getting high constantly. Like how? Like you, now in this movie, you're not partaking. Just that, that was sure. a great little like throwaway yep. line. Um, no, yeah, I think overall, um, I'm very satisfied with with this for a January movie, and it seems like this might be like the most polarizing January I can remember because we have a couple of movies that really hit. This movie seems to be a, like a yep. fairly decent hit. We have Bad Boys to uh, big hit, big yep. hit, and then we have movies that are getting panned as some maybe the worst January releases we've ever seen. You know, yeah, um, something like The Turning, um, yep. Doolittle, like F Cinema Score for The Turning, just absolutely <laughs> Doolittle by all accounts horrendous. Haven't seen it. <laughs> So it's it's setting up to be a very interesting year post uh, a very big like IP heavy 2019. Right. So we'll we'll keep our eyes on that and uh, especially with what is is con going on right now. What what's what's the film festival that's going on right now? Con, Sundance, bro. Sundance. Come on. Sorry, yeah, I I got totally uh, <laughs> brain totally brain fired. But with Sundance, we're gonna start hearing about the the better movies we should be hearing about this year, most likely. So uh-huh. hopefully picking up soon, but. You know, Dave, the Guy Ritchie, probably not going to get nominated for an Oscar for this. We're talking Oscars, though. And you saw Les Mis. So tell me about this. Tell me about this movie. I mean, I think I've, I've seen the play a couple of times. This is another <laughs> remake of, uh, you know, uh, with Russell Crowe. And, you know, yep. is it not, not that. No, it's not that. You can't hear the people sing. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a little different. Uh, it's, called, it's called Les Miserables. It's a movie from last year. It's the French... Uh, it was nominated for Best International Film. It was the French selection, which was notable because the France uh, Film Board selected Les Miserables over Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which has been widely, widely celebrated and championed. So it's actually kind of interesting that they pick something else from their country, which kind of speaks to their output. But yeah, it's called Les Miserables because it's set in the uh, Paris suburb called uh, Mont- Montreal, which is where Victor Hugo wrote Les Miserables in real life. And it's a movie that I really, really liked. Honestly, I didn't know really anything about it. I hadn't seen a trailer. just knew it was nominated and went and saw it last week. And honestly, really, it really, really blew me away just because it's a really, I think, impressive piece of like visceral day-in-the-life storytelling. It's about uh, this uh, cop played by uh, Damien... Damien uh, Bernard, who's a, like a French character actor. He's probably the most notable actor in the movie. Everyone else like doesn't even have Wikipedia's for the most part. Hmm. Um, and he's like a new, he's new, new to Paris and he's new to this beat. And he joins two other police officers in the, uh, 
it's anti-crime brigade, I think is what it was called. And it's their job just to keep the streets clean in this, uh, in this hood, you know, outside Paris. That's really all it is. And because it's a good day in the life story, you may, as you can imagine, uh, uh, we're about to see one of the, one of the worst days, right? And uh, the uh, he's he soon learns. Uh, he is kind of like our audience avatar. We soon learn that uh, the cops he's working with uh, regularly overstep their bounds and intimidate people and do illegal searches and don't respect people's rights and all that stuff. And they claim they're doing it so they get respect, but they're really just kind of menacing the neighborhood and stuff. And as we're going through the neighborhood, we're learning about all these dynamics and director uh, Laj Lai is from this area. So you can kind of tell that he's, he's making, he co-wrote the screenplay too. He's making this story from experience. And there's uh, a lot of uh, African immigrants in, in this neighborhood. They're one part of it. There's the Muslim brotherhood or a very other distinct part of it. And there's these uh, gypsy characters that kind of have a circus. They're in town. There's, there's all these different uh, sides, right? And, Kind of like there's a genesis that happens as the the plot kind of takes off, and there's these uh, children in the story that get on the, um, the cause the ire of of the police, whether justly or not. And there's an exciting incident that kind of makes the neighborhood spoil out of control. And I don't want to spoil what happens, but it's based off of uh, or I guess inspired by some uh, police riots that happened in 2005 in Paris, and I just really liked that this movie kind of just kind of built this really thrilling conclusion and just kind of communicates this, uh, it's almost like this operatic, uh, pulse to this neighborhood and all these different people, young and old in it. And seeing that through the eyes of police, uh, uh, was, uh, it was interesting to see. And, you know, it's, this is a movie that, Amazon is doing the U.S. distribution, so as you know, that means nobody has seen it. Um, <laughs> it was only in sixty, I think, sixty-nine theaters as of last week. It's made like two hundred seven thousand here in the states. So no, no one knows anything about this movie, obviously. But it was cool because, again, like the plot is ultimately pretty procedural. We're just kind of going through this day in the life. We're not getting too far into the hood of any of our characters, whether it's the police or the people in the neighborhood. But because it's really I think really visceral and moves at a really quick pace and really in your face. Uh, there's, a, there's a special energy to it, to me. So I really liked it. I, I put it in my top 15 on the list for last year. The way you started talking about it, it almost sounded a bit like training day a little bit. Like, you know, these like crooked cops sure. and this like new, this new guy who kind of uncovers mm-hmm. all of it, but sounds like it has like a bit of a grander, like yeah. uh, cultural like undertone to it. Sounds very interesting. What's the director's name? Uh, Laj Lai, she's um she was a, she's an actress. This is her her debut feature, oh. uh, and this actually uh, she won the jury prize at Cannes last year for this. So uh, definitely, I think definitely put some people uh uh you know make some more people pay attention. But because I think you know just a movie that maybe only a certain amount of people could make. You know, and when you make a movie about the problems with your own neighborhood. There's kind of a special touch to that. I think there's the energy. There's a special energy to the way they tell this story, even if it's yeah, it's not it's not that different from I guess do the right thing, but um, there's there's a special touch to it. So I would recommend this. It'll 
I assume eventually get on Amazon here in the States, probably in a, uh, you know, a few months. So keep an eye out for it. It's uh, too bad it's going up against Parasite this year. Yeah, uh, pretty much definitely no losing. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, you know, one of the things we wanted to talk about are categories that we believe should be added to the Oscars or just to kind of like talk about things maybe the Oscars is not going to cover. Correct. Um, so one of the things we wanted to throw out there was best first film, best debut mm-hmm. film. And, you know, you just mentioned Les Miserables. Um, I definitely yep. think uh, Laid Lie would be nominated for this. And uh, the uh, the Directors Guild does have this category. Yep. So Only uh, since 2015. It's actually pretty new. But so it's fairly I, new. I respect it. I like it. And we're, I think we're obviously going to throw out many of the people who were nominated for that. But do you have anyone that comes to mind to, that you would want to throw out for this category? Uh, you mean people that aren't on the DGA list? Oh, or just in general, the people that like come to mind for you for like for, like debut film that really caught you this past year? Uh, yeah, so apart from Les Mis, um, which I guess is the highest ranked on everything I have here, um, Olivia Wilde for Booksmart yes. comes to mind. A, a little different because she was already well-established in Hollywood as an actor, but that, I think that, that one's still, st- still a notable one. This movie, I think, fucking rules. Um, that, that's cool. Um, also, I actually just watched this. It's called I Lost My Body. It's this French animated movie on Netflix. It was oh. nominated, it's nominated for Best Animated Feature at the Oscars. That's directed by this guy named Jeremy Clapton, and this is his first movie. So that one definitely stood out to me. That was a really uh, really thoughtful, slow-moving, almost atmospheric, made-for-adults animated movie. Hmm. Didn't really know what it was getting into, but that, 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 that's cool. That's some cool shit right there. Um, yeah. What 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 comes to comes to your mind? Well, Olivia Wilde was the first one that came to mind for me. Um, but Joe Talbot for the last yeah. uh, black man in San Francisco is probably the, the one, one that I would give this to. Um, you know, I, unfortunately, I wasn't able to see it in theater, so my experience is a bit marred. You know, it's it's not the same seeing it at home. But this Go is watch it on Prime if you yeah, haven't seen it. Is available on Amazon Prime, as Dave just said, and. Ah, man, it's it's incredibly moving, and uh, it, it, you talked about like the like a slower paced film. This really feels just like it, it's putting you in a place, and um, the way he frames things, the lighting in this, especially when they're inside of the home, sure. and like the way the light comes through the windows, and it's like very like dusty and musty in there, but just really mm-hmm. gives it a, a sense of like place and feel and. Yeah, even you know, leading up to that, like play at the end that the friend does. I'm forgetting the friend's name, but Jonathan Majors is the director. Uh, I forget the name. <laughs> yeah, um, just an absolute. Uh, I thought that was a masterpiece of it for an indie film, and uh, I was really impressed with him. So I would give this to Joe Talbot. But anyone else you want to give a shout out to, or yeah, maybe also one, one last thing on Last Black Man in San Francisco. That opening opening montage, yeah, is just. <laughs> In a sense, you kind of get impressed with this being the, Joe Talbot's first film. We talked about this with the review, but like he's a guy who has been well known in the Bay filmmaking community for some time, even if this is his first feature film. But you just see the talent right there, both like the eye for like framing and like like storytelling in montage, you know. But like j- just the way he can kind of communicate motion without emotion without dialogue from the get go is uh really special and he's definitely someone who i think everyone's 
wants to see what's he going to do next now that we know he's going to be given a, a bigger budget for whatever he wants to do by somebody right so yeah, yeah the, he's really exciting. skateboarding scenes too especially after after the main character gets angry and he's like skateboarding and then he like he biffs it you know just like the yep. way it's shot first of all with like the wide going like down the the big hill and like the way it kind of like zooms in on it but then like the close-up and then he eats it it's like it really adds like a visceral sense to it without being like a violent in, in particular ways. Yep. pretty great um but yeah anyone else you want to shout out for this category uh, yeah, I also really liked Arctic from Joe Penna. That's his first movie. That's this movie that has very little dialogue. It's with Mads Mikkelsen who gets stranded in the Arctic when his plane crashes and has to survive. Came out <laughs> the beginning of the year. I watched it on a plane. Um, re- re- really cool movie. I, I mean, Mads, Mads carries it and he does it again without speaking a whole lot, but I really like that one. Also, funny enough, did you know Toy Story 4 is directed by a first-time director? Josh Cooley, who's a, a veteran animator at Pixar, that was actually his first time directing. So the asterisk <laughs> on that one, but it technically counts. Yeah, I saw that and I was like, should I throw that out there? But it's so pre-packaged at this point. And they have yeah, such a team yeah, around yeah. it. It's like, uh, it of feels course. wrong. But no, I did see that. You didn't want to give a shout out to like um, the, the people that made the peanut butter falcon or honey boy or anything like that. I thought you enjoyed those. Oh yeah, no. Uh, Alma Harrell, Honey Boy. Uh, she's the one who won won the DJ actually this yep. year. Um, her her direction on Honey Boy I think stands out just because she kind of communicates uh, flashbacks and the present day pretty well. And that's that's a, definitely a moody movie. I like that. Uh, Melina Mitsukis was nominated for Queen Slim. She's an accomplished uh, music video director. This is her first moon, uh, first feature. I uh, I like the movie. Don't love the movie, but her sense of style. Is very evident. Definitely talented. Um, the Peanut Butter Falcon guys uh, was it Tyler Nilsson and Michael Michael Schuston um, Schwartz. Michael Schwartz. Schwartz. Yeah, hearing sucks. Um, <laughs> that's a movie that really came out of nowhere. Like, Peanut Butter Falcon made over twenty million dollars, and like I, I also watched that recently um, after missing it in theaters. And uh, it's I give that I give more of that movie's credit to. Um, was it Michael Michael Gastigan? Is his name? Um, and Shia LaBeouf, just because their chemistry and their acting really stands out. But uh, definitely impressive for a first feature, just because it really kind of came out of nowhere. Um, and also shout out uh, Maddie Diop from Senegal for Atlantic. That was kind of a surprise omission from Best Inter- International Film this year. Um, that's uh, also quite an impressive movie. I'd recommend you go in knowing as little about the story as possible, and it, it should be an effective watch. It's on Netflix right now. Um, also, I didn't see this, but the standoff at Sparrow Creek, people like. Yes. Henry Dunham, Henry Dunham directed that first time. I didn't realize that was his first movie. That was a really good movie, actually. Yeah, I guess I've got to watch that. And then also, uh, The Mustang, you know, directed by this woman, uh, this French woman, uh, Laure de Clement. Well, people really like that. I haven't seen it yet. But yeah, it seems to be a lot of uh, first, time, first time features this year. And if you look back at the DGA uh, category in the first few years, you know, 2015. Alice Garland won for Ex Mahina, awesome choice. 2016, uh, Garth Davis won for Lion. That was a movie that got a lot of Oscar nominations. 2017, of course, Jordan Peele wins for Get Out. And then 20, uh, and Taylor Sheridan was nominated for Wind River that year also. And then 2018, Bo Burnham for Eighth Grade beats out Bradley Cooper and Boots Riley. And Ari Aster wasn't even nominated. So <laughs> I think this is, it's, a, it's a cool, the reason it should be an Oscar is because, again, it's a cool piece of film history that 
is worth honoring and it's, it's just you know it's part of the story like feature yeah. film debuts and sometimes they're not as big right like damien chazelle's uh first movie before whiplash didn't turn a lot of heads probably wouldn't have gotten recognized with this right but sometimes you have shit that blows people away, like a get yeah. out, right? So I think it's just, it's just part of the story. We should have this category. No, I, I completely agree. And, you know, the Oscars are nothing else. <clears throat> it's just another advertisement for the movies. So you should be, I, I think they should be putting these categories out there because you want people to be tuning in saying, ah, this person or that person. Everybody likes to get in the ground floor. Everybody likes the band when they're just starting up, not after the third or fourth album. So, yep. Um, we also want to talk breakthrough our actor, and then we, we're also going to do stunt. Uh, best stunts at the end but breakthrough actors so they have this at the gothams uh, i'm just yep. going to read through the the five people that were nominated then we'll only throw out people that we think maybe should have been mm-hmm. in here as well so we had taylor russell as emily williams and waves julia fox as julia holmes in uncut gems aisling franciosi as claire carroll in nightingale chris galost as vic in give me liberty and noah jupe as young otis lord in honey boy Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I think there's also one more. Uh, no, no, no. Sorry, I was I was incorrect on that. Uh, that was someone I added, so I I didn't yeah. have a clear delineation here. Um, out of all those, I think I've only seen Julia Fox. So I had a couple of people I wanted to include, but I'll give you the floor first. Anyone that stands out to you as maybe should have been included in that? Uh, I thought Jonathan Majors was nominated. Oh, maybe Either he way. was then. That, yeah. That's what I was going to say. So Yeah, for Johnson Last Black Majors. Man San Francisco. Um, him and Julia Fox are my, my, my top two. Uh, both coming out of nowhere in different stories. Julia Fox, total ingenue from the mm-hmm. Safties. Really kind of perfect piece of casting. And definitely brought a really important, I think, piece of energy to Uncut Gems and really helps make that movie shine. And then Jonathan Majors shows up in his buddy buddy's film and he's like oh shit yeah this guy's a fucking thespian like th- that was great you know mm-hmm. so can't he, he should be cast all the time and we're, we're we should get that soon you know yeah um but yeah i think there's some other good choices that weren't weren't in that gotham's field it's kind of a deep year so one person i wanted to shout out was um divine joy randolph yeah from dolomite is my name playing oh, yeah. lady reed she was fantastic <laughs> and as one of like the few female parts in that movie i think Mm -hmm. she really stands out and really uh holds her own against some legendary actors in that movie um so she was one and then also honor swinton burn as julie in the souvenir i felt like her not being nominated at the gotham's just like how 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 is she overlooked i thought she was fantastic i was i'm not familiar with give me liberty it's a comedy film apparently but uh, yeah, ultimately, it's a bit of a tough year. Other people that were nominated, think of uh, uh, Julia Butters from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes, that's a, we're, we're honoring a, a young kid, but I mean, Brooklyn Prince was nominated for Florida Project a few years ago, so I guess it's okay. Yeah, I mean, Julia Butters, we just assume she's going to be really, really good <laughs> in the future when she's not 10 years old anymore. So the fact <laughs> that she's already really good at 10, uh, I think is a good start at the very least. So shout out to her. Best piece I, of acting I've ever seen. Yeah, I agree. And they, they also nominated the girl from eighth grade. I'm forgetting her name right now. Yeah, Elsie Fisher. Yeah, Elsie yep. Fisher was also nominated. So um, yeah, I'm surprised she didn't get the nom as well. Good call. Um, what about Zhao Shuzhen? Hell yeah. As Nainai in The Farewell. You know, The Farewell just... The fact he got so under-nominated is so disappointing. Got no noms for the Oscars. 
sucks. Um, but I thought she was great and would probably be the oldest uh, breakout star on this list. Right. But. Yeah, and it's not like she just started acting. It's just this is her breakout in the Western world. So right. it, it, gets, it depends on how you think about it too. Someone like Caitlin Deaver in Booksmart has been in a lot of stuff yeah. the past few years, but that was her first like lead or co-lead role. Mm-hmm. Uh, same for Paul Walter Hauser and Richard Jewell, who... Yep. Not only is the first lead role, but obviously his best performance to date. So, kind of, it depends how you think about it. Um, and you mentioned Noah Jupe. You actually have seen him because he was also in Ford versus Ferrari as uh, Christian son of, Bale's son. Yes. Um, Pretty good in that. And, like, would Anna de Armas count in Knives Out? Because, again, she's been in a lot of stuff, but that's the first time she had a lot of lines in anything people saw. So, may, maybe she's a little too experienced at this point, but. Well, so I, I had the same question about Florence Pugh for Mid yeah. Samar, right? Right. Because um, she's I, been a lead before, though, with Lady Macbeth. So I wonder. Yeah, but this felt like Mid Samar was when people were like, "Damn, Florence right. Pugh." Like, well, and this is funny because the analog for this is like Best New Artist at the Grammys, and Best New Artist at the Grammys, at least in the past, is famous for awarding people after they've released multiple albums like Bonnie Vare at the turn of the decade, <laughs> right. you know? So it's like Florence Pugh. It's like, let's say like a year from now, she gets this award. And it's like, oh yeah, shout out Florence Pugh for the breakthrough. And it's like, well, yeah, but she's been in like five movies already in high profile <laughs> parts. Does this still count? <laughs> right. Well, it's kind of like even Lizzo this past year, like has yeah. like what, th- two albums before this past one. And then they're like, correct. Breakout star. Like, good. Good point. Um, so who would you pick? Who would be your breakout star from this year? Uh, I would go with Jonathan majors. I think he was the best, best talent I've seen. I liked a lot of these people. Um, uh, Taylor Russell, you mentioned she was recognized for waves. She's really strong in waves. I also want to shout out her co-star in that Kelvin Harrison jr who's also in uh, Loose. It's funny, he was actually nominated for this award two years ago with uh, It Comes at Night, uh, uh, the Waves director's first movie, or was previous movie. But for me, he kind of jumped on the screen this year. But it's actually funny that he was already recognized. But if you look back at the uh, Gotham history of this award, they've given it to a lot, of, uh, a, a, lot of, a lot of strong contenders. 2013, Michael B., Jordan, Fruitvale. 2014, Tessa Thompson, Dear White People. 2017, Timothy Chalamet. Uh, Lucas Hedges was nominated for this. For Call Me By Your Name? Yep, Chalamet for Call Me By Your Name. Yep. Hell yeah. And then obviously you mentioned uh, Elsie Fisher in 2018. Um, also people that weren't even nominated in like 2017, I think of like Barry Keoghan with Killing of Sacred Deer, obviously really in demand now. Haley Richardson in Columbus. This is, I think, again, an important category. It's like the Rookie of the Year Award in sports. Like, why not have this? We like minting new stars and even if it's like best new artist and once in a while we pick megan trainer i think it's still okay <laughs> because it, again it's part of the story it should be part of the record it's it's you, you want to mint the newbie and even sometimes say say jazz Sen gets nominated yes she's not a new person to mint uh, the traditional sense but that's still cool too it's cool to tell the story Absolutely. It's funny that we started off the show basically bashing the Grammys and now we're like, these are the things the Grammy does right. So, <laughs> uh, good way to like bring it full circle. And Dave, I'm going to let you kind of lead off with this one because I didn't really I didn't do too much research into this. What did you have down for like best stunts of the year? Best stunt? Yeah, it's so this is um, th- there's, a, there's a big uh, groundswell, I guess, from, from media. I guess there's the famous uh, Vulture article about we need a best stunts Oscar and it keeps getting recirculated. But like 
you think of like, I, there's not, I feel like there's not like an overwhelming amount of choices year to year, but there's always stuff that stands out. Like I thought Mission Impossible Fallout last year obviously blew people away once you learned about Tom Cruise's like dedication to doing all those stunts. And like when the Raid movies came out, like anything that's like martial arts based obviously is going to stand out. So I guess this year, John Wick 3 is kind of the obvious one because that's a lot, a ton of practical stunts. Um, but I feel like we might just be nominating a lot of the franchise movies with this award. So I guess maybe it's, you know, like I'm looking at like the SAG, the SAG Awards, they do a best uh, stunt ensemble award. But the Irishman was picked. The jo- Joker was picked once upon a time in Hollywood was picked. I mean, apart from the Bruce Lee fight with Brad Pitt, what other stunts are really in once upon a time beyond like the ending fight? Yeah, that, that was what came you know to I mean? mind. Um, Ford versus Ferrari, I guess. I mean, those are certainly stunts. They're stunts in cars. Yeah. So I guess Hobbs and Shaw counts in a certain regard too. Yeah, Hobbs and but, Shaw came to mind for me for this. You know, this would have been a better category to talk about last year, like you mentioned with, with Mission Impossible and a couple others. You know, something like The King comes to mind with those fight sure. scenes. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Really Swinging swords, battle yeah. scenes, yeah. Um, uh, you know, Six Underground, Triple Frontier have some pretty good stunts yeah, in Six them. Underground, that's a, that's a good point. Michael Bay uh, does does certain things better than others, but stunts, <laughs> some, some, some are in the good camp for him, no doubt. Yeah, that, that's a good one. Yeah, and obviously like John Wick 3 probably yeah. um, would that's be probably the winner. one that would win. Yeah, you know, this year was actually a down year for it, which I, I'm kind of like taken aback by. Yeah, Hobbs and Shaw, I think a movie I've forgotten to add to my um, my list on Letterboxd, which I Ooh, should go back and that. do. Um, and, and follow us on there as well. That, uh, Dave Martinson, at uh, Pat Sheen or whatever my name is on there. But anyways, um <laughs> Yeah, I think John Wick is the one that runs away with that. Uncut Gems also might have some some sure. cool moments in it, you know. Uh, you think back, like, a movie that was recognized handily at the Oscars, like Mad Max Fury Road. Sometimes there's just stuff that, like, really kind of stands out. And I don't know, maybe, like, this could be a category that maybe only has three nominations some years, you yeah. know? Like, it, you don't have to, to force it. But again, like, stunt performers and what goes into doing stunts is a really important and challenging aspect of filmmaking. So we should still be honoring it. And again, the Screen Actors Guild is already honoring this. So it's not like this is out of blue thought, but from, from what industry insiders are saying, adding any of these categories is not like on the horizon. So like it's going to take some time for the Academy is more open to this kind of change. But I think these three in particular would definitely be the most valuable to the discussion and the record. How how would you feel about movies like uh, Star Wars or uh, the Avengers, you know, in um, Endgame getting nominated for something like that? Right. I guess it depends how you write the award because there's lots of stunts in those movies. But those are also movies that are made almost entirely on backlots, right? It's not to diminish what happens, but I, I think it depends how you how you write the letter. Like Ford versus Ferrari and Mission Impossible Fallout is just a different kind of stunt than Avengers Endgame is, mm-hmm. or even Hobbs and Shaw. So, yeah, it, it, I think it depends what you're what, what we're trying to focus on. But like Endgame was nominated for Sun Ensemble at the SAG too. Like it, it, it certainly counts. No, I, I definitely agree. It's it's uh, 
it's a tricky conversation to have. And, and like you said, it will kind of come down to the parameters of it. So, um, but yeah, John Wick for that one, for sure. Any other categories you want to talk about? Uh, those are the ones that really stood out to me. Just do rookie of the year for acting and directing. Yeah. You, know? keep, keep, you can keep it a uh, male and female. I think that's fine. Given that it's not a overwhelming field any one year. Um, but again, I think just add, adding to the record and to the story would, would be, would be cool and having an excuse to get younger people at the Oscar, especially with the whole like wait your turn aspect of, right. of awards, winning awards, unfortunately, you know, like Timothy Chalamet, it would be cool to see him on the Oscar stage because we know like or Saoirse Ronan back when she was in atonement or something, you know, like it's just yeah. cool to see like the minting. So it's just what I would like to see as a fan. No, I agree. And like I said before, it's one of those things where, they should be using the Oscars to build up these people and to drive random. Um, so anyways, it's wrapping up there for us this week. What do we got next week, Dave? Next week, we are doing our Oscar predictions. Some awards pretty easy to forecast at this point. We're talking about <laughs> it anyway. Um, in terms of notable new things, um, Bojack Horseman, the last episodes for the show, the final batch of the last season comes out on Friday. Pat will be checking in on that in due time. Uh, the Assistant is coming out. This is a movie with Julia Garner. It's about me too. It's supposed to be pretty good. Um, so we'll see. That's probably limited release. We'll talk about that eventually. Um, and then music. There's um, some notable names. Kesha, Megan Trainer, Russ, and Louis Tomlinson from One Direction. Not super excited about any of those. I guess Kesha's the, the most intrigued to me, but we'll talk about the Oscars. So definitely be ready for that. Yeah, we got some things to talk about. Stay tuned at Nostalgia Pod, Twitter, YouTube, everywhere you want to follow us. We'll see you next week. Yeah.